Hello and welcome to Capital Cast. I'm Jerry Nowicki, and today I'll be joined by Peter Hancock and Andrew Adams to discuss a fall veto session that was marked more by what didn't pass than what did. In recent years, the General Assembly's annual fall veto session has been a venue for major legislation. Lawmakers legalized same-sex marriage in the veto session of 2013, passed a massive nuclear bailout in 2016, and repealed the Parental Notice of Abortion Act in 2021, just to name a few. But this year, the only big-ticket item to pass from a short list of bills we were monitoring going into the session was a measure partially repealing the state's moratorium on new nuclear power construction. Other measures, from a private school scholarship tax credit program to a bill allowing legislative staff to unionize to a measure governing the election of the Chicago School Board, have all stalled until at least next year when lawmakers return for their regular session that runs from January through May. There were a few other things that passed, including a bill aimed at streamlining professional licensing processes and a measure to electrify the state's vehicle fleet beginning in 2030, but for the most part, the session was marked by inactivity. With that, I'll bring in Capital News Illinois reporters Peter Hancock and Andrew Adams, who covered most of this week's legislative action. We'll start with Andrew and the nuclear bill. Andrew, give us a little background about the bill, uh, the veto of the previous bill, and and how we got to this point. For sure. Uh, After the bill passed, the sponsor of the legislation, Senator Sue Rezin, described it as a long and sometimes treacherous road to get the thing over the finish line. It was first introduced, although it had been in discussions for a while prior, in early session this year, so think late winter, early spring, and was in discussions throughout the legislative session until it eventually passed in May. Come summer, the governor vetoes the legislation, which would have allowed for the construction of several kinds of next-generation nuclear technologies. The governor vetoed it, citing concerns over safety and a lack of tight definitions contained within the bill. So fast forward to the veto session, and Senator Rezin and her House co-sponsor, Lance Yednock. Who's a Democrat, of course, so this is a bipartisan effort. Yes, very bipartisan. They introduce a new bill, uh, which contains much more regulatory oversight, much more clear instructions for the Illinois Emergency Management Agency, who has some regulatory responsibility over nuclear power generally, and a much narrower definition of the types of nuclear power that would be allowed. The new bill, which passed this week, is supported by the governor, is supported by wide majorities in both chambers at the General Assembly, with only a few Democrats in both chambers voting against it. It allows for only relatively small nuclear installations. It's 300 megawatts, which is about a third of the smallest nuclear installation in the state currently. They say this is, uh, you know, will be important to the future of energy development in the state. But how quickly could such a plant get up going? And, you know, what are the challenges for thing, something like this to, you know, it's an unproven technology, right? So what does that landscape look like? Sure. So the bill doesn't actually allow for any of these constructions to begin or even start the permitting process at the state level until 2026. And in addition to that, any nuclear 
reactor has to go through federal regulations as well, which can take upwards of six to eight years. So really, we're not even going to possibly see anything until at least the 2030s, maybe the 2040s. And that's only if a company decides that they think it'll be profitable or they think it'll be worthwhile to develop this technology in Illinois. And it, it's probably worth noting that uh, it's also been a busy week for the nuclear industry in general. Uh, the only company in the United States that has a, a permit to construct any of these smaller types of nuclear reactors canceled what would have been its first project on Wednesday. So there's some doubt, uh, some mixed feelings within the nuclear space right now in general. And this is something that the governor worked on this language, right? And he says he's going to sign it. Yes. After vetoing the original bill, which passed in May, the governor indicated that he was open to some kind of nuclear development and his office participated in the drafting of this legislation. They support the final version that passed and he has indicated that he uh, will sign it once it gets to his desk. And the environmentalists, they're happy about that, not happy about that. What's what's that looking like? A little bit of a mixed bag. Um, some of them remain staunchly opposed on both environmental grounds that they're worried about uh, generating nuclear waste and on a bit of an opportunity cost analysis, saying that investments in nuclear means we're taking away from possible investments in you know, renewable energy like wind and solar. Uh, it's a distraction from the path that Illinois was put on uh, by the major climate legislation in the past few years. That said, some environmental groups did eventually end up uh, kind of taking a neutral stance because there's some studies and some potential to put in some more strict regulations later down the line before this uh, bill would go into effect. Right. So changing gears a bit, uh, another bill that you covered this week aims to electrify the state's vehicle fleet. Can you give us a little bit about that and the timeline at which that would be implemented? Sure. This bill, uh, which went through some back and forth revisions over the past uh, several months, first in the end of the regular legislative session, uh, and then that version passed this week. Uh, would require the state to only purchase zero emission vehicles, which largely means electric vehicles, although technically it would allow for a hydrogen vehicle if that technology becomes available on the market. The state wouldn't have to jump right into this. It would go into effect uh, at the beginning of 2030, uh, and it has explicit exclusions for law enforcement vehicles and uh, certain vehicles purchased by the Department of Transportation for suburban bus systems. All right. Well, with that, we will switch to Peter Hancock, who was largely on the beat of covering things that didn't pass this week. Uh, Peter, the Invest in Kids Act seems to be the one that was certainly gathered the most headlines um, in terms of what we thought might happen, you know, was at least going to be discussed in the veto session. We didn't see any legislative action on that. Uh, can you give us a little background on that program? Sure. Uh, this is a program that started, uh, it, it passed in 2017. It was part of a bipartisan package 
that included overhauling the way Illinois finances public education. Of course, at that time, Republican Governor uh, Bruce Rauner was still in office. Uh, the state had been going through a two-year-long uh, budget impasse, and there was a big push to change the way uh, uh, Illinois funds public schools and to put more money into schools. Uh, but the only way Governor Rauner would approve that was if they included some sort of school choice measure, and that was kind of a, a um, indirect way of providing public support for private and parochial education. So what this was, was it, it's a uh, tax credit program that incentivizes people to contribute money to scholarship funds uh, so that lower income uh, students could attend private and religious schools around the state, uh, students who might not otherwise have access. Uh, it ran for about five years, uh, and it is expiring at the end of this year. There was a sunset clause put into it. There are about 9,600 students throughout Illinois who received these scholarships. And so even going back to the spring session, there was a big push uh, to uh, lift the sunset or somehow extend this program. And we had dozens upon dozens of people showing up at the Capitol every day wearing these blue T-shirts that said, uh, save my scholarship or save our scholarships. Uh, there was legislation that was introduced, but it was never called up for a hearing or called for a vote on the floor of uh, the House where it was introduced. And so there was a lot of frustration on the part of uh, Republicans in particular who are more in favor of these school choice programs and frustration by uh, the private school advocates uh, that this wasn't getting more traction. And I think really uh, what you can say is that in 2017, Democrats needed Republican support to get this thing through and to get it passed Governor Bruce Rauner's desk. Uh, in 2023, Bruce Rauner is gone. Democrats have super majorities in both chambers. And we have a Democratic governor who's not going to veto uh, increased funding for public schools. So Republicans just simply didn't have the same kind of leverage that they had uh, back in 2017. Right. And so one of the things to note, right, is these scholarship funds aren't necessarily going away or they aren't going away at all. Right. It's just the fact that um, donors to them now won't get that 75 percent tax credit now. So it, it's it's there's less of an incentive to donate. But, you know, if you want if you're if giving kids access is important to you, you could still donate to these funds. So it, it was $75 million, right, that that the state had sort of earmarked to that. And what was the concern then for teachers unions um, with when you're uh, basically taking 75 million out of state coffers for for something like this? Yeah, uh, you can still contribute uh, to scholarship funds. I mean, there are there are private schools, uh, religious schools all over the state. Many of them have, you know, funds that you can contribute to that will provide scholarships. Uh, and, but yeah, you don't get the 75% tax deduction um, or tax credit. 
so essentially what you had was people contributing up to $100 million a year into these funds, and they would get $75 million in total uh, worth of tax credits. Uh, and now you don't have that, but you can, you know, people still can uh, contribute to those funds. So, and, and to the point of the teachers unions, like what you, you'd had some conversations with them. What were they telling you about uh, why they were so opposed to this? Well, teachers unions and public school advocates of all stripes uh, generally frown on any sort of program that takes uh, public, uh, that siphons off public funds that could otherwise be used for uh, public education. In this case, uh, you, you were siphoning off about $75 million in tax revenue that the state otherwise would have received. They also had some objections to the way private schools operate. Uh, their contention was that many private schools still have discriminatory admission policies, uh, that they can expel students or suspend students uh, in ways that public schools cannot. They can withhold transcripts and school records if a student still owes fines, which of course you can't do in public schools in Illinois anymore. So they their objection was that this really isn't equitable, that the students who go to these private schools are not receiving the same sort of rights and privileges that public school students receive. And there's also the argument that, you know, there's no real evidence that these private schools do any better than public schools. And there was a big discussion. There was supposed to be data collection. Uh, the students who received these scholarships were supposed to take the same standardized tests that public school students take every spring. And there was going to be a study to determine whether or not they were doing any better in private school than in public school. But then in 2020, the pandemic hit, so they weren't able to administer the tests. 2021, uh, there was still very low participation rates, and so the data collection in uh, you know the state assessments wasn't very good. So they only got uh, data from the final two years, 2022 and 2023, and they're still waiting on a private contractor to publish a report and an analysis about whether or not the private schools were doing any better. But that's not going to come out probably until after the program expires at the end of this year. Right. And then one of the last things I'll say on that is like the procedural part of it is, is the uh, sponsors of the bills needed three-fifths majorities to uh, pass anything that would be effective before the beginning of the year to extend this program just because of a, a, a procedural requirement in the state constitution. So that increased the challenge. Uh, now, Peter, Republicans say they're going to uh, sort of keep at this, but it, it's going to be an uphill road for them. Uh, is, would that be accurate? Yeah, I think so. Uh, they said that uh, they are going to keep at it coming up in the spring. And of course, in the spring, as you mentioned, you don't need the supermajority, three-fifths majority, uh, to pass a bill with an immediate effective date. Uh, it only takes a simple majority. Uh, so it's a little bit easier, but there does appear to be some, you know, really adamant opposition within, uh, you know, organized labor, which exerts a lot of influence in Illinois, as well as within democratic leadership, 
that they're not really interested in pursuing this kind of program anymore. Right. Well, Governor Pritzker said he'd sign something if it got to his desk. Uh, he certainly didn't lift a finger to try to get it there. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of those things you see in politics. He's not going to jump out there and you know exert opposition to it. But he also, as you said, didn't lift a finger to uh, help pass it along. He was more like, if you get it to my desk, I'll sign it. Uh, but getting it to my desk is your job, not mine. So, you know, another thing you and I both have covered um, in the recent weeks is a measure that would have allowed legislative staff to unionize. Uh, that passed the House in the first week of the veto session. It was always pretty clear that that was going to happen because it was House Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch's staff that was sort of leading the unionization effort. And they, it was Welch who sponsored the bill to sort of uh, head those concerns off. But it did not go anywhere in the Senate this week. So can you give us a, a little bit more background on that and, you know, the, its prospects in the Senate? So this was really a push by employees within the House Democratic Leadership's office. You didn't see the same sort of push among House Republican staff or among the Democratic or Republican staff in the Senate, you know, either caucus in the Senate. Uh, and so there just wasn't the same uh, sort of energy in those other caucuses. And, you know, I think that uh, they have taken care of some of the uh, workplace issues by uh, giving people raises, by renegotiating, you know, paid family leave, time off, overtime rules, those things that uh, people in the, uh, the House Democrat staff were concerned about, uh, I think. People in the other caucus staffs uh, really didn't have those same concerns, but it is indicative uh, of a changing culture within state houses generally. Uh, there have been unionization movements in other state capitals in California, uh, Oregon, uh, Washington State. Uh, there have been some pushes in some other states. This used to be unheard of, but now it's political staffs who work in state houses are uh, starting to demand to be treated like employees in any other kind of workplace, which is really kind of interesting. So so we'll just watch. We'll see if there's any revival of it in the Senate in January or if it sort of quietly slips to the back burner, because, you know, while you had 38 co-sponsors in it in the House, support of a whole de Democratic caucus, uh, Senate President Don Harmon is its Senate sponsor. It has no co-sponsors. It hasn't been assigned to committee. Um, even Welch said it needed work when it got to the Senate. So truly don't know. It, it looks like that might not go anywhere in the other chamber, but um, I guess we're just going to have to watch that as it develops. So with that, we'll switch back to Andrew Adams on another issue that didn't go anywhere this week. Well, well a couple measures did. Uh, go somewhere, but it, it didn't clear both chambers of the General Assembly. There's some disagreement between the House and Senate on this as well. And it's an issue that's more pertinent to Andrew, who's a Chicago resident, than it is to me. I live in Springfield. So it pertains to the election of the Chicago School Board, which to this point been appointed by the mayor. So Andrew, what did the General Assembly need to do to sort of fix that bill that they, that they passed? Um, the, in the previous General Assembly, and, and you know, what is it that uh, we're looking at here in terms of fixes? Sure. So there are some 
uh, big questions left unanswered at the moment on the Chicago School Board election. Lawmakers have until April 1st to sort all of this out, so there's still some time to get this done. But currently, there's a bit of a, a cold war happening between the House and the Senate as uh, Senate President Don Harmon has his own proposal for kind of the mechanics of how this election would work, and so does Representative Ann Williams over in the House. Uh, there's uh, among the differences between these proposals. Um, I think the, the biggest is whether or not the school board will be elected all at once starting in 2024 or whether it will be staggered and have some amount of transition period where some members are elected and some will be appointed by the Chicago mayor. Right. So that's just sort of one where we haven't been covering super thoroughly. I think the Chicago media outlets are doing a, a bit more of a thorough job because it's directly pertinent to all of their readers and audiences. So we we direct you there for a more thorough look. But I think it's interesting uh, from our perspective to see, you know, the the Democratic power structure a little bit divided on how things are working on that. That's going to do it for the latest edition of Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. We're a state house reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation, and we receive significant support from the Robert M. McCormick Foundation and other funders, such as readers and listeners like you. Before I go, I'll note that from now through December 31st, your donation to Capital News Illinois will be doubled as part of our News Match campaign. If you're so inclined, you can support CNI by visiting capitalnewsillinois.com support dash us. As always, thank you for listening.